Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to Church in the Valley. I'm Pastor Matt, and I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. We are continuing our series called Understanding the Times, where we're trying to get our minds around what's going on today in our culture, what is it that God sees, and how we should respond as Christians. And the first week, we looked at a very powerful idea that's beginning to move into our culture. It's a form of Marxism, which essentially says that all of life boils down to oppressor versus oppressed. And as it moves into the church, it's actually producing a counterfeit gospel that really seeks to replace the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we took time to look at that the first week. The second week, last week, we looked at civil rights and the idea that our rights are actually something that God gives us and that he wires them into the social spheres that he's created. And that each social sphere that God has created, when it's doing its job, it actually leads to the prosperity of the whole society. This week, we're going to be looking at another topic, which is extremely popular today and on the lips of many people, and that's justice. What is justice? How do we get justice? Now, the desire for justice is a great thing. There's a lot of people calling for more justice in society. And if it's truly justice that people want, from God's point of view, that's a good thing. But oftentimes today, when someone uses the word justice, what they mean and what you mean And what someone else means and what God means, they may all be different things. And so I'd like us to look today at what justice is based on who God is, based on what God says, so that we can align ourselves with the one who is truly just, God alone. I'd like to start with a story, a parable that Jesus told his disciples. I'd like you to listen to it. And at the end, I want to ask you a question. The parable is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. You find it in Matthew. It says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. A denarius was a day's wage. It's like 20 bucks today. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they agreed and they went. He went out again about noon, so that's three hours later, and again about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. Then at five in the afternoon, that means there was only one hour left to work, at five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go, work in my vineyard. Now when evening came, The owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last one hired and then going on to the first one hired. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius, the entire day's wage. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only an hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. That's not fair. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for Denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So, Jesus says, 
The last will be first and the first will be last. Now, in this parable, we have a picture of a contractual arrangement, people doing labor, people being paid, a landowner. Was this just? Was it just for the landowner to pay the people who worked one hour the same that he paid the people who worked all day? I guess it depends on your definition of justice. And if you ask this question to 10 different people on the street, you could get 11 different answers. Our definition of justice today has so far skewed from the Bible that what you have in our society is a variety of thoughts on the topic. And without some sort of common understanding, really without an understanding from the Bible about what justice is, our society is going to see less and less justice, not more and more. Even in the church, even in the church, as people use the word justice, they often mean very different things. So here's the question. What does God say about justice? What does he say in the Bible? And so I'd like to look at that. The first thing when it comes to justice and the Bible and God is that God is just. Deuteronomy 32 says he is a rock. His word is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Do you want to know what justice is? Do you want to see it in action? Look at God. Listen to God. God is just. Everything he does is just. And so if we want to be people of justice, and if we want to see a society of justice, then we must line ourselves up with the one who is just, God. It also says in Psalm 146, He, that is God, upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over foreigners and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. God takes personal interest in the weakest and the poorest and the most vulnerable. He looks out for their rights. He sees that they have justice. The rich and the powerful, they have money. They can hire lawyers. They can protect their rights, but it's the poor and the needy and the orphan and the foreigner who don't have that kind of protection. And the Lord takes personal responsibility to see that it's done. He wants us to do the same thing. God has exclusive rights to define justice. If you read the scriptures and you look at the Bible, it's very clear. God and God alone has the right to define what justice is. Justice is whatever lines up with the character and the teachings of God. Nothing more and nothing less. And so if you look at the scriptures and if you were to write like a summary of justice, here it is. Righteousness and justice in a biblical sense means to conform to the character of God. And as more and more people put away the Bible and look to sociology and political science and psychology and other forms of human teaching to draw from them a standard of justice and reject a biblical standard of justice. As we do that as a culture, we're actually seeing greater and greater injustice because God is just. God defines justice. And if we would like to see more justice in our society, then we as Christians and as a church, we have to live and walk in and teach and proclaim the God of justice. This is how a culture is slowly changed. And in many ways, we're doing a work of recovery because we've lost something that we used to have, which is a biblical understanding of justice. The third thing is that God wants his people to be just. So God is just. He sets the definitions of justice. And it's pretty clear from the scriptures that he wants everybody to be just. Everybody he's ever made, and and, and more specifically his people, 
So in Micah 6.8, speaking to the whole human race, the Lord says, He has shown you, O mortal, that's everybody, He's shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. In Exodus 23, speaking specifically to his people, the Lord warns them against doing things that quickly lead to injustice. Listen to this warning and think about our culture today, the things you've seen on the news, on social media, and ask yourself if we haven't seen some of these things today. Exodus 23, 1 through 3. Do not spread false reports. Don't make stuff up about other people to make them look bad. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Don't justify the crimes that someone does as a valid means to an end. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. Don't jump on the bandwagon. Don't just do things because they're popular. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd and do not show favoritism to the poor person in a lawsuit. The Lord takes personal care and looks out for the rights of the poor. But the Lord does not pervert justice for the poor. The Lord protects the rights of the poor, but he doesn't show favoritism to the poor. And neither should we. Now, when we look at our society and we see specific acts of injustice, we want other people to be just. We want to be just ourselves. The question is, how do you make that happen? Do you get people to be just by you know, being um, angry at them, by pressuring them, by making them feel guilty and ashamed? Is that how you get people to act more just? No, that doesn't work. People do the minimum to get you off their back. People do the minimum so that the crowd will leave them alone. People will virtue signal and they'll post the right things and they might even give money to the right groups and they'll make sure everybody knows it so that the group will get off their back. But it's not really justice in their heart that they're after. They're just after getting away from the pressure. If you really want to see people's hearts transform so that they become peoples of justice and mercy and grace, that they become people who go even beyond justice. The only person who can do that, the only person who's ever been able to make that happen, is Jesus. Jesus is the one who transforms the hearts of men and women. He's the one who's able to go deep down inside and reorder our heart so that we actually become people who are full of justice, mercy, humility, and love. A great example of this is Zacchaeus. You may remember Zacchaeus, right? He was a wee little man. He was a tax collector. He robbed his community on behalf of the Romans. Everybody hated Zacchaeus. He was the poster child of injustice. Jesus comes to town. He tells Zacchaeus that they're going to have lunch together. Zacchaeus has a radical conversion. He puts his faith in Jesus. He knows that Jesus is the way to the Father. He wants to be restored in his relationship to God. He knows that Jesus does that. He's experienced the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, the love of God, and it completely transforms him from the inside out. And then here's what Zacchaeus says. But Zacchaeus stood up and said, Lord, look, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay them back four times the amount. Four times the amount. The law required 20% more, but he paid 400% more. He gave half his money to the poor. Today we'd be like, wow, that's great. But how did this transformation happen? It happened because he was pressured, because he was guilted, because he was threatened. No. Cancel culture didn't make Zacchaeus just. The love of God that he experienced 
through his faith and obedience to Jesus, made him more just. Jesus can transform me and you and this world into a place that is more just, but he does it one person at a time by the love and the mercy and the grace of God. This is important for us as Christians to remember. If we're really interested in justice, it starts with the human heart, but only Christ can transform the human heart. With that kind of preliminary introduction into justice, I want us to look at what the Bible says specifically about justice. Now, in order to do that, we have to understand two key concepts, two key concepts that are underneath the biblical idea of justice, and we need to look at the five dimensions of God's justice. It's not just one thing. It's not simple. It's five-dimensional. I don't even know if that's a phrase, but it'll work. Five dimensions of God's justice built on two key concepts. Rights and duties. If you overemphasize either rights or duties, then what happens is you get out of whack and you actually commit injustice. So first of all, rights. As image bearers of God, we all have an equal right to be treated with dignity and to exercise our free will within the social spheres that God has created. Number two, all of us have duties that God has placed upon us. We are obligated to not violate other people's rights, and we're obligated to positively help other people where it is right, good, and wise to do. I have rights, but I also have duties. You have rights, and you have duties. And if I overemphasize my rights, or if I overemphasize your, your duties, I get into error, and I get into injustice. A lot of the problems that we're seeing in our culture today are coming from this group emphasizing rights too much. And this group emphasizing duties too much. And what you need is you need to find a biblical balance. So what happens when you overemphasize rights? Well, you become selfish. You become proud. You start being arrogant and thinking that all the good in your life is because of your choices, your hard work, your talent. And that's not true. Much of the good in my life, much of the the benefits that I experience in my life are because of the time I was born, the place I was born, the family I grew up in, the, the talents and opportunities that God gave me as I've lived my life. Yes, my decisions are a part of it. But to think that my choices have produced all the good in my life, that's not true and that's not biblical. King Solomon was the richest and wisest king uh, in the ancient world. And you would think that if anybody could say, I've done this, <laughs> it would be King Solomon. But he didn't say that. Surveying how success works in life, here's what he said. I have observed something under the sun. The fastest runner doesn't always win the race. The strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. The wise sometimes go hungry. The skillful are not necessarily wealthy. And those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. There's not a cause and effect between your merit and your success. It doesn't always work out that way. Instead, he says, it's all decided by chance, by being in the right place at the right time. That's true. A lot of our success is about being born at the right place in the right time, the right century, the right country, the right region, the right family, the right opportunities. And so we need to recognize with humility that much of what we have, we have been given or we have inherited. And therefore, we should be ready to share as it is wise and good and right to share and to do good for other people who may not have as much as we do. But if you overemphasize duties, or if you overemphasize someone else's duty to you, you can equally commit error. Because when you overemphasize someone else's duty to you, you actually diminish your individual dignity. You begin to turn down your personal responsibility beyond the level that God has given you. And you start to feel entitled 
to other people's rights and other people's property. You become angry and bitter. You take on a victim mentality. And this makes you less than what God desires for you. So you have to find a balance. If you remember the parable we just read about the landowner and the workers, several workers were upset that they didn't get paid more for doing more work. But listen to what the Lord Jesus says the landowner said. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? That's important. This individual freely chose to work for the denarius. Nobody forced him to do it. He made an individual decision. And the landowner showed him the dignity due him by entering into a contract with him. And so the landowner paid him what he wants, what they agreed to. And the landowner entered into a different contract with those workers who only worked one hour. And that landowner has the right to contract with other people if they're willing to do it. But you see, the workers, they're turning up the landowner's duty to them. And they're turning down their personal responsibility for the choices that they made. And this is an error. Ask yourself before you subscribe to a definition of justice or before you throw your weight behind a certain cause. If those people are not turning up too high their rights and turning down too low their duties. Or if they are turning up too high the duties that other people have to them and turning down too low the rights that other people have. These are two fundamental concepts that lie below justice. And now, having understood that justice is about rights and duties, let's look at the five dimensions of God's justice. First of all, when it comes to God's justice, God's justice is renumerative. Renumerative. What that means is, is that God meets out, he, he gives out just rewards as an expression of his love. So we should respect the rights of people to enjoy the rewards that God has given them for their good deeds. In Proverbs 22.4, it says the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord is riches, honor, and life. So if I see somebody with riches, honor, and life, it could very well be that that's the reward that God has given them for humility and fear of the Lord. Look, none of us are perfect, and none of us have any claim against God. All of us have sinned, and so truly what we deserve is death and hell. But God has so decided in his love and mercy that in spite of all of our sin, he's going to reward us for the little good that we do. And it's not right for me to take away the blessings and the fruit that God has given you for the choices that you've made. This brings us to the second dimension of God's justice. God's justice is meritorious. It's meritorious. This, this means we want to live in a society that is as much a meritocracy as possible. We grant the idea that sometimes there's unequal distribution of money, unequal distribution of power, unequal distribution of opportunity based on merit, based on the choices people have made. You see, merit links choices and outcomes. It links cause and effect. Merit means that everyone has an equal chance to succeed and an equal right to try, but that we don't have an equal right to certain outcomes. And that's a very important distinction. Those who give greater effort, those who make better choices, have a right to enjoy success. This is what the Declaration of Independence means when it says pursuit of happiness. So in God's meritorious justice, he is going to reward people for the good that they do, the, the, the choices that they make, and it may result in unequal outcomes, but that is not by definition 
unjust. For example, in 2 Thessalonians, it says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. When a man is not willing to work, he doesn't eat. And if you show up, for example, in this church, and you see a man who's not eating and a man who is eating, that's unequal. But the question is, is it unjust? No. Because a man needs to work, he needs to produce, so that he can eat. It shouldn't be that I work and you eat, or that you work and I eat. It's about merit. It's about people getting what they've worked for. And that's not wrong. In our society, we want to see merit as a major, uh, as a major factor in determining outcomes. The third thing is substantive, substantive justice. And substantive justice means that we respect the substantive rights that God has given people. God has given everybody the right to life. He's given them the right to liberty, that is to make choices. He's given them the right to property and collect it and to own it. And he's given them the right to reputation. And so whatever definition of justice that I use, if I'm violating the substantive rights of people, if I'm taking away their life, their liberty, their property, or hurting their reputation in the name of justice, I've actually violated God's justice. God never does this. He doesn't violate the substantive rights that he's given people. And so any kind of justice that we have must recognize the substantive rights that people have been given. The fourth dimension is retributive justice. God pays back those who do wrong. He punishes evil. Just like 7-Eleven is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, Psalm 7-Eleven says, God is a righteous judge who displays his wrath every day. Every day, 24-7, seven days a week, 365 days a year, God is, is pouring out wrath on this earth. He's punishing sin. He's paying people back justly for what they do that is wrong. This is what God does. He repays. It's called retributive justice. God meets out just punishment as an expression of his wrath. And so one of the things that you see in our society today is that everybody's calling for retribution. Everybody wants someone punished. And this is the only dimension of justice people are focusing on. They're not considering the other dimensions of justice in their call for justice. It's just retribution. It's just revenge. And yes, punishment for crime, punishment for injustice is a part of the way that God executes justice. It's not the only part. It's interesting. The Civil War, which was a, uh, the worst conflict this country's ever gone through, the Civil War was over slavery and the expansion of slavery out west into the territories. The war was a long time coming, and 600,000 men died. An entire generation of, of American children grew up without dads, uncles, without you know, brothers. Uh, uh, 1.2 million Americans were maimed in that war and were crippled the rest of their lives. Both North and South sunk trillions in wealth into that war. It took 100 years for the South to recover economically from the war. When Abraham Lincoln was reelected, when he won the election of 1864, and he gave his second inaugural address in 1865, he stood before the people whose children had died in the war. Many of them uh, were parents of uh, sons who had died in the war, and they were mad. They were angry. It was clear the North was going to win. So this was the time to twist the knife. This was the time for Lincoln to tell them, you know what? The North is good. The South is bad. And we're going to make them pay. That's what the people wanted to hear. That's not what Lincoln said. If you read the second inaugural address, Abraham Lincoln says to all these people, many of whom had children who had died fighting against the South. He said to all these people, this war is a punishment from God. 
It's retributive justice for the South and for the North. And if you read it, he says, we, the North and the South, we've benefited from slavery. All of us are guilty in one way or another. And then he says something interesting. He said, yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn by the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so it still must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The Civil War was God's judgment on America for the sin of slavery. And Lincoln said, I bet you that if you added up all the money that we stole from slaves and you took all the blood that we took from their lives and you compared it to all the money that we've spent in this war and all the blood of our sons that we poured out on battlefields, I bet you'd be about the same. In other words, we're all guilty. What a powerful thing to say to people. He recognized that God is the one who pours out judgment. A lot of people today want retribution. And one of the reasons why is they don't believe that God is in the judgment business. There's a lot of people who want retribution because they don't think that God is pouring out his wrath every day. And they need to be the agents of wrath. That's not true. That's a lie. They are mistaken. God is and God has and God will continue to execute justice on this earth. And so as Christians, we don't have to have this pent-up rage and anger and frustration and anxiety that somehow people are all going to get away with the evil that they do. They will all give an account to God, and God is in the business of pouring out justice. There's a lot of talk today about reparations. That means to repay someone today for injustices that were done against their ancestors. But that's a really hard standard to apply. I mean, after all, we just saw businesses be burned to the ground. We saw individuals assaulted, in some cases shot at and murdered. We have the photos and the videos of the people who did it. Do you hear anybody who's calling for reparations, calling for those people to be brought before the court and made to pay back what they have done in damage? You don't. You don't hear that because the standard is not equally applied. Reparations, the idea that you pay for the sins of someone in the past, you know, who can apply that? Isn't there, I mean, couldn't all of us find some sort of societal force that has caused some sort of injustice in our life? For example, here's a photo of my grandparents. This is my Nana and Papa. They're Asian immigrants. They're Filipinos. They came here after World War II. I'm sure that if I did some digging, if I spoke to my mother, that I could find examples of racism and prejudice. I'm sure in some ways they were disadvantaged by the color of their skin. Am I entitled to be repaid for that injustice? My mother is an Asian American. Both her parents are Filipinos. But she married a white man, my dad. Should my dad pay my mom because he's white and she's Asian? Who wants to be on this jury? What judge would you trust to mete out this kind of justice? Part of the reason why there's so much talk of reparations today is because we don't think that God has dealt with sin in the past 
We don't believe he's dealing with sin in the present, and we don't think he's going to deal with sin in the future. And so we've got to fix it ourselves. But in the process, we actually create more injustice, not justice. That's an important thing to keep in mind. And that's why this final dimension of justice is so important. It's called procedural justice. It's not enough to see the outcome as just, but the process you use must be just. God is a God of procedural justice. God uses fair processes in deciding things. For example, God is impartial. God is fair. God is, he, he judges based on the truth. We have to judge based on the truth. We have to be fair. We have to be impartial. God is also an equal protector of all people's rights. He wants his governments to be equal protectors of rights. He wants his families to be equal protectors of rights. He wants his churches and his businesses. He wants the whole world to be a place of equal protection. We treat all according to the merits of their claims, not on the basis of their group identity. Justice is blind to things like race, economic and social standing and status. Those things cannot influence justice. If we allow the process that we use to get the outcome that we want to be corrupted by partiality, prejudice, favoritism to this group or that group, if we allow that to happen, we're not going to get justice. We're going to get more injustice. We're going to create a new slab of victims who will then call for justice for themselves. And slowly society unravels. You have to exercise all five dimensions of justice to see in our culture the kind of justice that God has, the kind of justice that God does. What about inequality? Yeah, I get all this. This is all interesting. But there's a lot of inequality in our society. There is. And there's a lot of anger about inequality in our society. But isn't the question whether or not someone's rights have been violated? I mean, after all, if if there's inequality because of race and gender and economic status, and that's the only factor that explains the inequality, that's wrong. But the existence of inequality in general isn't by definition unjust. I'll say that again. The existence of inequality is not by definition unjust. Because honestly, God has made us unequal in many ways. Time and chance factor in to inequality. Choices that we make factor in to inequality. It's not as simple as there's an inequality, there's injustice. That's just a simplistic view. A more wise and biblical understanding is that there are multiple factors to consider. For example, the Lord says to Moses something very interesting. He says to Moses, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf and mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I? Interesting. God is saying that much of the inequality that we see is inequality that he is responsible for. Now, who's going to hold their fist to God and say, it's not fair. I mean, look at me. I have no hair. You probably have lots of hair. That's not fair, right? Is that follicle injustice? No, just the way it worked out. When I was a kid, I was a swimmer. When I started swimming at seven, I swam every day after school for two and a half hours. I swam on the weekends. I swam uh, once a month in swim meets all year long, except for August. It was exhausting. It took up my whole life. And I got faster and faster. Between seven and 12, you know, I was doing pretty good. Then at 13, this new kid shows up, Kenneth Carpenter from the Rose Bowl swim team. He had never swam before. I mean, he could swim, but he was never a competitive swimmer. He just showed up when he was 12. And in one year, he was killing everybody. 
This guy won the 100 fly, the 200 fly, the 100 back, the 200 back, the IM, the breaststroke. He was winning everything. It wasn't fair. I mean, I had been slaving away in a pool from 7 to 12, and now he just shows up and beats all of us? That's not fair. That's not equal. But you see, God had gifted him in a way he didn't gift me. And I'm sure God had gifted me in ways he didn't gift him. So you got to understand, this is very important, and you have to teach this to your children, because children are very susceptible to the argument, look, inequality, that equals injustice. And you have to teach your children a more sophisticated understanding of explaining inequality. Much of the inequality is not the result of the injustices. It could just be time and chance. It could just be how they were born. It could be choices people have made. And yes, it could also be because of injustice. Because of this confusion, you see a lot of posters like this. Stop racial inequality. Stop gender inequality. Here's a photo of Bernie Sanders. He is seen as a champion of economic equality. And look, if there's racism and and sexism and, and some sort of oppression of the poor, then what are the specific facts? Let's make it right. But in general, if you just say, I see inequality and therefore I see injustice, that's not biblical. It's not wise. So here's some questions to ask yourself when you see inequality. First question, is the inequality the result of violations of the above standard of justice? We just looked at God's five-dimensional justice. Which of those five dimensions of justice does this inequality violate? Number two, is it within my stewardship to correct? One of the things that I'm seeing a lot today is I see this person and this group condemning that person and that group. I see this person calling that person to be more just. That's not, a, that's not right. I have a stewardship over my family. I have a stewardship within my church. I have a stewardship within uh, my community. I'm a citizen of Ontario, California, and so I elect the mayor and the city council members. I have stewardships in my life, and in those places, I have a responsibility to see that things are done justly. But I'm not a citizen of Minneapolis, Minnesota. I saw the tape of George Floyd getting what I believe to be murdered, but I don't vote For the mayor of Minneapolis, I don't vote for the city council of Minneapolis, and neither do you. You vote in the cities that you're a part of. So yes, I'd like to see justice done, but my focus needs to be on my stewardships. That's what God has given me. And that's an important question to ask. It feels really good to like condemn people for the speck of sawdust in their eyes. But what if we have this huge plank in our eye? We have to deal with our house first. Then ask the question, which of the five have been violated? Who are the violators and what are the facts? Facts are so important. You can't have justice without the truth. Can the victims be made whole? Or is it a victim from hundreds of years ago and the perpetrator died hundreds of years ago? Who are the victims and can they be made whole? And finally, if it is within your stewardship and one of these five dimensions of justice have been violated and you do know who the violators are and the facts show that there has been an unjust act committed, What is the most just way to restore to people their rights? This is the approach we need to take when we look at inequality in our society. This is a measured and a prudent approach. It's a biblical approach. And you can be the voice of prudence in a situation where people are screaming for blood and screaming for justice. And they're blowing past these questions and they're violating true justice as defined by God. The goal is not equality of outcome, biblically. The goal is equal protection of the dignity and rights that God has given every person. God has made us strengths and weaknesses. God intends for us 
to be agents of justice, to be agents of truth in this world. The poor and the weak, they tend to be oppressed because they don't have the resources to see their rights respected. And God wants us to look out for them. That's right to do. But at no point should we ever violate the rights of people. At no point should we ever discriminate or be prejudiced or show favoritism or partiality to this group or that group based upon their group identity. This is a perversion. This is injustice. And this will bring God's punishment into our lives, which, of course, we don't want. The last thing to pay attention to when we're talking about justice and God is that God is actually merciful. He's just, but he's also merciful. And God showed us mercy on the cross. This is the amazing and startling thing about Christianity. God did not give us. He didn't pour out his punishment on us that we deserve, but instead he poured out his wrath on his son instead. Jesus Christ takes the just punishment for our sins in our place, and we benefit. We receive all of the blessings and all of the privileges and all of the rewards that Jesus deserved for his perfect life. Romans 3 says this, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, in his patience, he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. God is allowing people space to repent. A lot of times God doesn't punish. He doesn't kill. He doesn't blot out people because he wants them to turn and receive mercy, just like he's done for me and just like he's done for many of you. This is incredibly important in discussing justice. Many of us have a very short shot clock. We want justice now. We don't want to know about the facts. It doesn't matter what the process is. Just make them pay. Retribution. That's not how God deals with us. It says he demonstrated his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God is just because he punished the sins that we've committed, but he punished his son instead of punishing us. So we need to be careful the measure that we use in judging other people. Jesus says, do not judge others and you will not be judged for You will be judged, you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. We have to be very careful. Young people who are watching this, pay attention. If you allow someone else's standard of justice to become your standard of justice, and you start using it against this group and using it against that person, God will hold you accountable to the same. We need to line up our standards of justice with God's standard of justice. And always remember that this is happening in the context of mercy. God has forgiven us, so we must be quick to forgive. In the end, there will be justice. The final judgment is coming. God judged this world with water in the days of Noah, and only Noah's family survived. They were hidden in the ark, and they were saved from God's wrath. God will judge this world with fire. A day of judgment is coming, and all of us who hide in the ark, that is Jesus, all of us who are in Christ will be saved from that wrath. And on that day, God will judge every person for what they've done. True justice will be done on that day. And so we, as his people, are patient. We know that we will see justice done in the end. We, as his people, proclaim his mercy We call people to repent, just like Noah did for 120 years as he built the ark. He called the people to repent, and not a single person did. We, in our lifetime, need to call people to repent 
of their sin and receive the forgiveness and mercy that God has offered in Christ before the wrath of God comes. And it will come. Revelation says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the book. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. The death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. That's a terrifying thought. A lot of people want justice today. But the truth is, if we got the justice that we deserved, we would be dead. We would be in hell. Thank God that he has shown me and you and he is offering to this world mercy in his son who has already paid the price for our sins. This is why we proclaim the gospel. I'd like to end by encouraging you to take a next step. Now that you've gotten the perspective of the Bible on what justice is and what it's built on and what the stakes are in our society, now that you better understand, hopefully, our times, what can you do? Number one, if you have not yet decided, if you have not yet said, I follow Christ, I will trust and obey Jesus. He is my Lord and Savior. I put my whole life into his hands. I receive his forgiveness for my sins. I want to come back into the family of God. I want God to be my father and Jesus to be my king. I'm ready to start that life. If you haven't done that, do that. Don't wait. Tomorrow is not promised and all of us will stand before the Lord one day and give an account. We want our names to be written in the Lamb's book of life. We want to be among those who God has forgiven because we've accepted the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. I want to encourage you to decide to follow Christ today and forever for the first time today. And if you decide to do that, please let us know in the connection card. Number two, use the five dimensions of justice to correct injustice within your stewardship, in your family, in your business, in your community, in the areas of life that you have stewardship for. Correct injustice. Look at that five standard dimensional justice and compare it to yourself, compare it to the situation and see if there's not something that you need to correct. Number three, ask God to give leaders wisdom to administer justice. God pours out his wrath and pours out his justice on this earth through the government. Not only through the government, but primarily through the government. Pray for our leaders. They need wisdom. They need to know what true justice is. And number four, choose leaders who will defend liberty and justice for all. We need to select people in leadership who recognize that it is their job to protect the rights and restore the rights of the people. God has created it so, and this is their responsibility. This is true justice. So choose wisely this November. I hope this has been helpful. I hope this has clarified and helped you better understand our times when it comes to the question of justice. I encourage you to look at the notes that are here in the outline um, connected to the sermon, and I'd like you to join me as we pray for God's help. Father, we thank you for your great love and your mercy. Thank you that you do not hold our sins against us because you have sent your son to die on our behalf. He faced injustice. Here is a perfect, righteous man who was murdered for crimes he did not commit. But in your great plan, this was the sacrifice that you, that you made so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be brought back into your family, so that we could receive your grace and love. Father, teach us how to be people of mercy. 
Father, we thank you for your justice. We thank you that you hold back the evil that goes on in this world, that you punish that which is evil, that you reward that which is good, that you connect choices people make with the outcomes that they have, that you're not just just in the end, but you're also justice at every step of the process. God, you desire justice, and we want to be people of justice, but we need your help. We ask that you give us wisdom and teach us and and really internalize into our own hearts your standards of justice. Help us to, to lead and to use our authority justly in all the different areas of our life. And God, please give us leaders who are committed to biblical justice. We ask, God, that you would save us from all of the division and all the trouble that is coming into our culture today that is rooted in a misunderstanding of justice. And we pray, Lord, that you would raise up your people and give us opportunities to proclaim your son so that hearts can be truly transformed and justice can be truly done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.